Uh, we might be talking about football. There's an analogy there. Um, all right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get into our time of study today. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings of the day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And as we join together as your brothers and sisters, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as your family, we are united around what you have done for us, the mercy that you have shown us. And at this moment, we're united around your word and how your word shapes us and forms us and makes us into the people of God. And Lord, I pray that as I teach from your word today, that you would bless me, that you would give me the words to say that would encourage and build up and that you would take away those words that would distract or lead astray and that all would be done for your honor and glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13 as we are coming to the end of our study in the book of Romans. And we really only have two more uh, sermons left in the book of Romans. I'm going to skip a few passages and, and get to the end of the book of Romans by the end of October. And I mention that because I want you to know about where we're going next. And I want to encourage you, first of all, to be in prayer, but also to be thinking about how you can participate in where we're going next. Because for the month of November, my intention is to basically preach four simple, straightforward sermons in, uh, that are on the topic of the gospel. Basically, I intend to present four sermons that are gospel messages uh, presenting how, who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for those who are outside of Christ. And I say that I want you to pray for and consider how you can participate in it because, number one, if you're not a believer and you come to church because your parents make you or because you uh, are just doing this for tradition or whatever the case may be, then I encourage you to be in prayer and listen attentively to what uh, those sermons will reveal about the gospel. If you are a believer, then I want to encourage you to do two things. First of all, uh, it is always good to just be reminded of the gospel. Uh, as, as one of my favorite theologians says, uh, that Christians need the gospel too. We need to be reminded of what Jesus has done and be built up in uh, that, that truth. Regardless of how long we've known it, we should never forget it. But second, I want to encourage you to use these uh, Sundays coming up in the month of November, use them as an opportunity to invite someone to come to church. I mean, I would encourage you to do that every Sunday, but especially during the month of November, invite your, your lost friend, your lost co-worker, your lost family member to come and, and be in prayer for them to come during the month of November because I want to use this as an opportunity to present very clearly and very simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in, in that, I hope to see people come to faith in him. And so I want to let you know about that as we get into our sermon today, because I want you to go ahead and be praying for it, be thinking about it, be thinking of who you can invite and and how you can uh, use this as an opportunity to present the gospel to them. So as we come to the end of the book of Romans, we're moving into the last major section, the last section that uh, of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And he's going to transition into his hope for the missions that he intends to carry out to the Gentiles. 
Remember I said at the beginning of the book of Romans that Paul is writing to encourage the Roman church, but also to ask for their support in his missions effort. He intends to go into Spain and he wants them to help in that because Rome would be kind of a launching point for him to go from Rome into Spain. And so he's asking them to support him in his missions effort. And we're going to see that next week as we get into that that appeal that Paul makes there. But as we transition into this, uh, this new section of the book of Romans, he begins that hope for missions with something that he's already introduced. And that is that the ultimate act of sacrificial love is displayed in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And that has an impact on how we should view the world, how we should view God's mission in the world. Remember last time we talked about uh, the examples of sacrificial love, and we saw that the ultimate example of sacrificial love is in the fact that Jesus, who was, as Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and taking on the form of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. So Jesus is this supreme example of sacrificial love that we are all, as believers, called to live out in our daily lives. And specifically here, Paul wants to answer the question of why it was that Jesus made himself nothing and died for our sins. I mean, if you think about it, you, you, know, you could wonder why did Jesus have to die on the cross at all? Why was it necessary that he was born of a virgin, that he lived the sinless life that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve? Why does all that have to happen uh, for us to be saved? Couldn't he have saved us by some other means? And the short answer to that question is no. But Paul is going to give us some good reasons why His death and resurrection were necessary. He's going to give us three reasons from the passage that we're going to study today. So let's read Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13 together. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse verse 8, God's word says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So there are three points that I want you to see from this passage today, and and they all relate to Jesus becoming a servant. So I want you to see that Jesus became a servant for the sake of truth, for the sake of mercy, and for the sake of hope. So first, 
Jesus became a servant for the sake of truth. Now in verse 8, Paul says that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now that's a complex statement. It's a very short sentence, but it's a complex statement that we need to unpack. And to do that, I need to rewind all the way back to children's Sunday school when you learned about a very popular story in Genesis chapter 11. And it's a story I'll refer back to uh, time and again because it's more pivotal than we recognize. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. You remember that great and famous story of how the people were gathered together in one place and they began to build a tower uh, into the heavens and their intention was to reach into heaven, to reach into God's throne room, but also to make a name for themselves. And God saw what they were doing and he decides to come down and to confuse their language so that they would stop doing that and that they would scatter, be scattered into all the world. And the result of that confusion is that they are dispersed. Now, this, tr- this story and the reason I go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel is because I think we fail to recognize just how tragic this story is. And I'd encourage you, uh, if you aren't reading through the Bible, to start in Genesis chapter 1 and read all of the book of Genesis. And what you'll see there is that the story seems pretty consistent up until Genesis chapter 11. It seems as though God is concerned with all of humanity. I mean, you get that with uh, Cain and Abel, right? Because God doesn't abandon Cain even after he has sinned against God. He, he protects him. It gives him a sign. So God doesn't just let Cain go off and be killed by other men. He, he protects him. You see it in the, the flood because God becomes concerned with the wickedness of men. And so he judges the world in a flood to constrain evil. And he gives Noah the command for government after the flood so that it would constrain evil. But then with the Tower of Babel, something shifts. All of a sudden, God is no longer concerned with the whole of humanity. In Genesis chapter 11, and particularly in Genesis chapter 12, all of a sudden, God gets this unique and particular focus on one family. He disregards what all the rest of the nations, all the rest of the peoples are doing, and he begins to focus on one man. And also, an interesting thing that develops after Genesis chapter 11 is before chapter 11, you don't have any discussion about other gods. There's no mention of any other god except for Jehovah. But then, after chapter 11, you begin to see other gods, pagan gods, false gods of other kinds. So, in this, we see that there's this shift that happens, that God focuses His attention on one family. He fixes His favor on one man, Abram, from the land of Ur. And in that fixation, God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And there, He promises that He's going to bless him, that He's going to make His name great, and that he's going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And then the most important statement for us of all of those statements is he says, and through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. 
He promises to make him a great nation and he promises to bless all the nations through Abraham. So from Isaac to Jacob to the 12 sons of Jacob, God continued that covenant and that favor. He even went to war against the greatest nation of the time, the nation of Egypt, so that he might set them free from their slavery in Egypt. He gave them his laws. He provided them with priests and sacrifices for atonement. He led them into the promised land and established them there. Then he called them to be a light to the world. They were to be different, to exemplify holiness and forgiveness and justice. They were an elect people. So so if salvation was going to happen, it was going to happen through them. It was going to happen through the nation of Israel. And yet, they were a fickle and hard-hearted people. They couldn't keep his laws from the heart. And as soon as they inhabited the promised land, they turned to the other gods of the land. They rebelled to the point that God judged them with conquest and exile. And it was very apparent, as Psalm 14 would recognize, that there was none righteous, no, not one. Jeremiah would pass judgment on the nations of Israel and Judah by declaring in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yet God had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He had made a promise that he would bless them and that through them all the world would be blessed. So we have a problem here. Has God lied? He said that he would do this thing and he knows uh, better than anyone. He knows the heart of men. In fact, in Genesis chapter six and again in Genesis chapter eight, God says that the heart of man is evil from his youth. So God already knew that men were deceitful. They were liars. They were sinners. He already knew this. So why did he make a promise to start with? If he knew that from the beginning, if he couldn't keep his promise, why would he do that from the very beginning? Was he telling, was he not telling the truth when he promised to bless Abraham and the world? So Paul answers that question in verse eight, and he answers it by saying that in Jesus Christ, God has proven himself to be true. You see, Jesus was born a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He knew the law so well that at the age of 12, the religious scholars marveled at him. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he used the word of God to resist him. When questioned by the religious leaders, he left them dumbfounded with his wisdom. When tried by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, Pontius couldn't find any fault in what he had done. And yet, he was crucified on Passover Friday. While the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in remembrance of God's faithful deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the Son of God bled and died on the cross of Calvary. But his death was not a defeat. His death was victory. And this was proven three days later when Jesus rose again from the dead. In his death and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled the law by defeating death and hell 
for us. So Galatians chapter four, verses four and five says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the promise of Abraham. Jesus is the one who redeemed the people of Israel by doing what they could not do. So God has proven himself true. He has kept his promise. He has proven himself to be the promise keeper of Israel who would do what they could not do and redeem them in spite of themselves. But there's still a problem. Jesus came as a Jew and he fulfilled the covenant covenant of Abraham. And that's all great and fine and good if you're a Jew. But what about the rest of the world? Is there any, th- any hope for a Scotch-Irish descendant in Greenville, Alabama? Or am I doomed to die and face hell because I'm not a part of the covenant of God that he made with the house of Israel? So that brings me to the second point. Jesus became a servant for the sake of mercy. In verse 9, Paul says that there's another reason that Jesus became a servant. He became a servant, to quote Paul, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In his death and resurrection, Jesus opened the door for Gentiles to enter the covenant family. Now, how does this happen? We've already studied how this happens in the first half of the book of Romans. We know that, as Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2, that everyone is a sinner. Everyone, regardless of whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you're a sinner and you're under the curse of sin, which is ultimately a curse of death. But as Paul says in Romans chapter three, there is another way of righteousness, a way of righteousness that God had foretold from the very beginning of the uh, of the book of Genesis, that there would be another way of receiving the righteousness of God. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that everyone who, like Abraham, trusts in the promises of God is a child of Abraham. If you have trusted in what Jesus has done for your sins, if you trust that his death and his resurrection pay for the penalty of your sins and give you the hope of eternal life through him, then you are a part of the covenant family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter that you're not a Jew by birth. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are part of his covenant family, a part of the promise that he made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And Paul wants us to understand that all of Scripture was telling us this would happen. And so in the verses between chapter 9 and chapter I mean uh, in the verses between verse 9 and verse 13 we have these quotes that Paul gives from different parts of the Old Testament. He quotes from the law, he quotes from wisdom, and he quotes from the prophets. And he does all this to show that all of the Old Testament was telling us that the Gentiles were going to come into the covenant, that the Gentiles were going to be a part of God's great salvation plan. 
And notice why God would do this. He says that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God was merciful to us when we were in darkness. He shone the light of the gospel into the darkest parts of this world. Now, I want you to understand this. I want you to catch this. I mentioned earlier that my, my background, my lineage is Scotch-Irish. So I'm, I'm Scottish and Irish mix, and I've got some German in there somewhere too. Um, but all of, those, all of those cultures were pagan cultures before the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them. All of them were, the Rome, as the Romans used to call them, barbarians. They were barbaric in the way they treated each other. And you were probably, unless you have a Jewish background, you were probably from one of those tribes as well. And those places that we are from, if the gospel had not come to us through an evangelist, through a missionary of some sort, we would have been a part of cultures that would have practiced human sacrifice. We would have been a part of cultures where cannibalism might have been the norm. We would have been a part of cultures that are, had cruel laws of revenge and torture. Or a part of cultures that had vile sexual practices. But when the gospel came to our place and time, when the gospel shone its light into those dark places, those places were changed. They were radically different. After the gospel came, there was law and order and justice and mercy and peace because of the presence of the gospel in the lives of those former pagan lands. So I want to end by understanding the last reason that Jesus became a servant from verse 13. He became a servant for the sake of hope. By fulfilling the promises of God to Israel and by showing mercy to the Gentiles, Jesus has joined together all peoples into one family. This family of God is a family of joy and peace because we have peace with God and we have peace with each other. And this family is a family of power too because the Holy Spirit is with us and gives us the strength to live righteously in this fallen world. Because of that, we live in hope. We do not live in the meaningless nihilism that our current culture purveys with no hope or aim in this world. We do not live without morality or truth. We live by faith and hope in what Christ has done, knowing that one day, he will return to make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of Jesus. We thank you that he has joined together those things that were divided. He has brought to light those things that were in darkness. And we praise you because you have rescued us from the, the realm of darkness, the realm of sin, the realm of false worship. And you have brought us into the light of eternity through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would understand that and we would live in accordance with it as living sacrifices that are sent out into this world to, to show others the true way to live, to show others the true way to walk in light, and that we would be faithful witnesses in that. I pray all these things in Christ's name.